A Western journalist tells the story of Johnny Lingo, who lived on the island of Nurabandi in the South Pacific. The fictional story was first published in 1965 and later made into a short movie produced by Brigham Young University. Johnny Lingo was known as the shrewdest businessman in the region by the people on the neighboring island of Kinuata. Yet they always laughed when they spoke about him. The villagers of Kinawata laughed because Johnny Lingo had come to their island and found a wife. He paid old Sam Carew eight cows for his daughter Sarita. Now in their culture, one or two cows was the common price, and four or five cows would have bought the most beautiful girl on the island. Yet Johnny paid Sam eight cows for a plain, skinny girl who walked with slumped shoulders and was afraid of her own shadow. He had paid eight cows for her without even bargaining. The people laughed because Sam Carew would gladly have taken one cow for Sarita. The Westerner decided to meet Johnny, so he went to the island of Nurabandi to see him. When he arrived, the most beautiful woman he had ever seen entered the room, and Johnny introduced her as his wife, Sarita. Surprised, the journalist said to Johnny, she does not look like the same person they describe on Kinuata. Johnny replied, on Kinuata, Sarita believed she was worth nothing. Now she knows she is worth more than any other woman on the islands. I wanted to marry Sarita. I loved her and no other woman but I wanted an eight-cow wife. Well, friends, God takes nobodies and makes them into somebodies. God paid an infinite price for you by sending Jesus to die on the cross for you. He chose you for himself. The realization that God has chosen us transforms us. Worth nothing by ourselves... Ugly in our own sins, we are priceless in Jesus Christ. In Zechariah chapter 2, verse 8, God calls the nation of Israel the apple of his eye. The same expression is used back in Deuteronomy 32.10, where Moses described how God loved Israel. He found him, Israel, in a desert land, and in the howling waste of a wilderness, he encircled him, he cared for him, he guarded him as the apple of his eye. Israel was nothing, and God made her the apple of his eye. God is in the restoration and reformation business. The message of this third vision of Zechariah is simple. Restoration encourages reformation. Let's examine how this process works in Zechariah 2. First, God promises restoration to his people in chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. The people of Israel that the prophet addresses were moping around, convinced that God had forgotten them, that he had abandoned them. They were poor. They were deprived. The Gentile nations like Babylon and Persia, were oppressing them. 
They could wail, Woe is me, for I am worthless. Where is the God who said he loved me? Yet, God is a God of promises. Even more importantly, God is a God who keeps his promises. In this vision, God gives his people two promises about the future. God gives a promise of expansion in verses 1 and 2. Zechariah writes, Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there was a man with a measuring line in his hand. So I said, Where are you going? And he said to me, To measure Jerusalem to see how wide it is and how long it is. God introduces the prophet to a surveyor who has come to measure the city of Jerusalem. The surveyor has come to measure the city and the temple in preparation for the rebuilding of Jerusalem. Ezekiel had a similar vision 70 years earlier, and his description of the surveyor leads me to think that this surveyor is none other than the pre-incarnate Jesus Christ. In the visions of God, he brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain, and on it to the south there was a structure like a city. So he brought me there, and behold, there was a man, whose appearance was like the appearance of bronze, with a line of flax and a measuring rod in his hand. And he was standing in the gateway. The man said to me, Son of man, see with your eyes, hear with your ears, and give attention to all that I am going to show you, for you have been brought here in order to show it to you. Declare to the house of Israel all that you see. That's Ezekiel chapter 40 in verses 2 through 4. And the following chapters in Ezekiel lay out in detail the measurements and plans for a great city and a colossal temple to be built for God's people. Now notice back in Zechariah chapter 2 verse 4, God indicates that Jerusalem will expand beyond its walls. The people and animals will overflow into the surrounding unwalled and unwalled and unprotected countryside. This would be very dangerous in the ancient world. So God gives them a second promise. God gives a promise of security in verses 4 through 5. The angel said to me, Run, speak to that young man, saying, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I, declares the Lord, I will be a wall of fire around her, and I will be the glory in her midst. God is emphatic here when he says, I myself will be her wall and her glory. The glory of God is the visible expression of his presence in the Old Testament. Once again, Ezekiel, written 70 years earlier than Zechariah, provides the background for this verse. Ezekiel saw a vision where the glory departed from the temple. Ichabod, the glory has departed, and the city prior to her destruction was abandoned by the glory of God and was destroyed by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Yet, in Ezekiel 
chapter 43, verses 1 through 5, Ezekiel sees a vision of the glory returning to the temple after it is rebuilt and after it is restored. Zechariah, like Ezekiel, foresees a time when the glory of God lives again in the midst of God's people in the restored city of Jerusalem. I personally believe that Zechariah's and Ezekiel's visions will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom after Jesus Christ returns to this earth. However, other fine Bible scholars hold other views. First, there are those who believe that these passages were fulfilled already in the reconstruction of ancient Jerusalem. But, of course, the reality is that Jerusalem has never been rebuilt like these passages describe at any point in her past history. Second, there are those who explain the passage in figurative terms for the worldwide expansion of the church today. There are two reasons why I do not believe that Zechariah is predicting the global expansion of the church in our times. One, if this vision refers to the global missionary expansion of the church today, then how was that a comfort to Israel in Zechariah's day? The vision was intended to comfort the people of Israel, according to what the Lord has already said in Zechariah chapter 1 and verse 13. Second reason, in order to understand the passage as referring to missionary expansion of the church in our day, you must take it all as highly symbolic language. It is all figurative and not literal. I believe that we ought to interpret Scripture in its plain or normal sense as the readers would have understood it in their day, unless there is some compelling reason not to do so. As the saying goes, if the plain sense makes good sense, seek no other sense. So I believe that all these night visions relate to the future of the nation of Israel and her restoration will take place in the millennial kingdom. God's point in these revelations is that his people were to live their lives in the light of the future and not the past. And friends, so are we. We are to live our lives in the light of the future and not the past. Too often, we let whatever we have done in the past control our spiritual experiences. It's no wonder that we have such spiritually depressed people in our churches, because we are just like ancient Israel. Haggai, Zechariah's contemporary, has a great expression to describe the believer's life. The believer's life is always to be lived from here on in or from this day on. My friends, neither your past failures nor your present circumstances should control your future hopes. God wants you to live for him from this day on. You can start fresh today because of the promises of God. So God promises restoration for his people. 
And then God pleads for reformation from his people in verses 6 through 13. Prophecy is practical. It is always intensely practical. God gives us glimpses of the future in order to motivate us in the present. The story is told of an English teacher who had a unique way of teaching creative writing. As the class began, the door would burst open and an attractive, dark-haired woman would rush in. The teacher would leap up from his desk and cry out, Mary, Mary, darling, and run to her side. He would lead her outside and close the door behind them. A few seconds later, he would re-enter the room alone, and he would say to the class, That was the end of the story. Now you must write the beginning and the middle of the story for your assignment today. Well, friends, God tells us the end of the story, and he wants us to write the beginning and the middle of the story with our lives. We are to live like people who know how the story ends. How should we live in the light of the end? Zechariah gives us three commands in these verses. Command number one, be separate, verses six through nine. Ho there, flee from the land of the north, declares the Lord, for I have dispersed you as the four winds of the heavens, declares the Lord. Ho, Zion, escape, you who are living with the daughter of Babylon. For thus says the Lord of hosts, after glory he has sent me against the nations which plunder you. For he who touches you touches the apple of his eye. For behold, I will wave my hand over them so that they will be plunder for their slaves. And then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me. Twenty years earlier, about 50,000 Jews had left Babylon to return to the land of Israel. However, most of the Jews stayed in Babylon. Persian and 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 the Syrian empires had made them very comfortable, and they had become comfortable in their new lives in exile from the nation of Israel, the land of Palestine. They had developed businesses for themselves. They lived in security in their adopted countries. Why should they uproot their families, move, and begin all over again? We're doing fine here. We're being prosperous. That was the, their thinking. But God gives them three reasons to get out of those countries and return to the promised land. Reason number one, they should flee the land of the north because the Lord plunders, verse 8. God says, I am about to destroy these countries in judgment. If you remain among them, I will destroy you too, verse 15. The greatest illustration of this principle, of course, would be Sodom and Gomorrah. God warned Lot and his family to get out of that city before he destroyed it. Second reason, they should, they should also flee the land of the north because the Lord protects, verse 8. God tells them that they are the apple of his eye. 
The Hebrew word apple means literally gate. It is a reference to the pupil of the eye. The pupil is extremely sensitive and vulnerable because it is the opening to the retina inside. Think of all the protection that your pupil has within the surrounding bones. The eyelids, the lashes, the eyebrows are all there to protect the eye. God says, I will protect you for you are sensitive and vulnerable to your enemies. They should also be separate from the land of the north because the Lord proves, verse 9. God can dispense the enemy with a wave of his almighty hand. He doesn't need armies. He doesn't need missiles. Just a flick of his wrist and they are gone. When this takes place, it vindicates who he is and proves that his promises are true. The world may laugh. But when God moves, they will know who he is. He is the Lord of hosts, the God of armies. The vision is about the nation of Babylon. But the imagery is the background for Revelation chapters 17 and 18, where Babylon is a symbol of global evil. God's people are told to come out of Babylon and be separate. Revelation 18.4, because God will judge sin and evil. There is a basic spiritual principle, both for ancient Israel and for us today. Beware of worldly entanglements. Don't become so comfortable and so entangled in this world system that you become like Lot's wife. Lot's wife could not let go of Sodom and Gomorrah when God called the family to come out and be separate. As God's people, we should be separate. And secondly, we should be glad, verses 10 through 12. Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst, declares the Lord. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord in that day and will become my people. Then I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. The Lord will possess Judah as his portion in the Holy Land and will again choose Jerusalem. Sing for joy and be glad, no matter what your current circumstances, God says. Why? Because the Lord comes, verse 10. The early Christians used to greet one another with the expression, The Lord is coming. And the other person would return the greeting by saying, The Lord is coming indeed. We must never forget that truth, my friends. Live your life with the marvelous realization that Jesus is coming back. The doctrine of Christ's return is not pie-in-the-sky, by-and-by theology. It changes everything we say and everything we do right now. The person who truly believes that Jesus is coming back lives life differently today. If it doesn't make a difference in your life now, then you don't truly believe it. So be glad because the Lord comes. 
and be glad because the nations believe, verse 11. There's coming a day when many nations of this world will join themselves to God and will become God's people too. I believe the pronouns in this verse refer once again to Jesus Christ. The nations will one day bow the knee to Jesus Christ and worship him. This will take place in the millennial kingdom when he rules the earth. That is what the Apostle Paul meant in Philippians 2, 9 and 10, when he wrote that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So be glad because the Lord comes, and be glad because the nations believe, and finally be glad because the Lord possesses, verse 12. The Lord will possess Judah as his holy land and Jerusalem as his holy city. In the millennial kingdom, the Lord will once again choose Jerusalem and Palestine as his holy land for his own possession, set apart for himself. This is the only place in all of scripture where Palestine is called the holy land. Why? Because until the Lord comes back and establishes his kingdom on earth, it's not the Holy Land. We call it the Holy Land today, but we should probably call it the unholy land in the light of biblical prophecy. But there is coming a day when Christ will call it holy. That happens when he returns, and he will set it apart for him to dwell in as the King of kings and Lord of lords. God pleads with his people to live reformed lives in the light of his promised restoration. He pleads with his people to be separate, to be glad, and to be silent, verse 13. Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord for he is aroused from his holy habitation. There is coming a day when God wakes up from his holy home. Now, God, of course, never actually sleeps. Psalm 121, verses 3 and 4 says, My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. He will not allow your foot to slip. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The arousal of God is a figure of speech, as if God was taking a cosmic nap and suddenly wakes up to judge the evil of this world. The figure of speech explains why God has not kept his promises to Israel yet. It's not time for judgment. But... One day God will come in judgment. Look out, world. What do you do when you face an almighty God in judgment? Shut up. Be silent. All the bravado is gone. All the rationalizing becomes silliness. All the arguments and all the excuses become soap bubbles when you stand before the God of the universe. Our God is a consuming fire, and all mankind, all flesh, 
will fall on their faces before the living God in absolute silence when he comes in judgment. Israel desperately needed to know that they had a future hope given their present circumstances. Their future hope was to energize their present living. Israel knew the end from the beginning. She had already read the last chapter of the book, and that knowledge should have changed how she lived. But what does it all have to do with you and me today, in 2021? We need to apply the same principles to our lives today. God can take a nobody and make him or her a somebody. It's what he does. You have infinite worth, not in yourself, but in Jesus Christ. And that knowledge should transform you. Restoration encourages reformation. Our hope is the hope of heaven. We too know the end of the story. We too know the end from the beginning. And we too know that God is in the transformation business. He changes us. Rebecca Pippert tells of an experience she had while taking a course at Harvard University called Systems of Counseling. They were studying how the therapist helped a patient uncover a hidden hostility toward his mother. Before they went on to study the next case, Rebecca Pippert raised her hand and asked the professor, let's say the patient returned and wanted to learn to forgive his mother for what she had done to him, to get beyond his anger. The professor said, lots of luck. He'll have to learn to live with his anger. The power to change is not within our grasp. If you guys are looking for a changed heart, you're looking in the wrong department. Changed hearts are God's department. We have too often adopted the world's attitude about life. We say, I've got a bad self-image, or I have deep anger toward my mother or father, as if by naming our problem, we have done all we can do. Do you feel stuck with your problems? Do you feel trapped by your circumstances? Do you feel helpless with no power to change? Friends, God is in the restoration and reformation business. He promises you a bright future in Christ. You don't have to stay stuck in the past. With Christ, you will have a glorious future because God specializes in the restoration business. I don't care how bad you've been or what, what you've done in your past. I care not what trials and experiences have shaped your life. God can change you. After all, you really don't believe that you will still be your miserable old self in heaven, do you? God must change you to enjoy a heavenly hope, and he starts changing you now. Our hope in heaven is proof positive that we believe in the God of restoration and reformation. One of the critical steps to spiritual change is to live life in the light of your future instead of your past. 
We must learn to shape our lives by hope, not despair. We need to start each day by singing, nothing is impossible when you put your trust in God. Do you believe that truth? <laughs>